Hello, and welcome to The Context. My name is Scott Pruitt, and I'm an anchor with News China. With our podcast, we aim to provide insight into the current trends of modern China, allowing you to clearly see what's happening today through a historical lens. going to talk about a complex individual who came to China in the early 1920s as an agricultural explorer. The success of his early work in Yunnan province and his love for the region led to nearly three decades of expeditions and the creation of an unmatched body of work on the Nashi people and the remote area they inhabit. The Asia Floriculture and Horticulture Trade Fair, more commonly referred to as the Asia Flower Expo, is the most important floristry event in the region. Established in 2009, the annual expo was scheduled to take place at China Import and Export Fair Complex in Guangzhou in South China's Guangdong Province from November 16th to the 18th, but due to the lingering COVID-19 pandemic, it's been postponed to May of next year. About 600 exhibitors and 40,000 visitors had registered to participate in the trade fair to present and discuss the latest products and services in the industry. It has become a global platform for communication and cooperation within the flower industry, featuring fresh flowers and potted plants, florist supplies, floral design and decoration, as well as gardening tools, machinery, and supplies. In China, there are two cities that are internationally reputed as City of Flowers. One is Guangzhou, which is the main flower production base in China, and the other is Kunming, capital city of southwest China's Yunnan province. Kunming is also known as the City of Eternal Spring for its amiable climate and temperatures throughout the year. So it's little wonder that the renowned Austrian-American botanist, explorer, photographer, and anthropologist Joseph Francis Charles Rock would be utterly captivated, spending 27 years in the region. And he would have stayed longer if not for the turn of historical events that prohibited his return. In fact, it's truly amazing how much Joseph Rock accomplished in his life, considering its instability. He was born in 1884 in Vienna, Austria. His mother died when he was six, and he was raised by his father and older sister. His father worked as a steward for a Polish count and was set upon Joseph becoming a priest. But Joseph had other ideas. He had a keen intellect, but was also stubborn and egotistical. He often skipped classes to wander the streets and parks and dream of great adventures. He developed an interest in foreign lands and languages from an early age. He taught himself to read and write in Chinese since the age of 13 and dreamed of traveling someday to the Middle Kingdom. Rebelling against his father's wishes, he began drifting around Europe, picking up odd jobs here and there. And like many poor people of that time, he also developed tuberculosis, a disease that was to shape his destiny in many ways. When his father died, Rock inherited a few items, including a gold watch that he was able to sell. At the age of 23, he had scraped together enough cash to buy a steamer ticket to New York. 
In the United States, he continued his lifestyle as a drifter, working as a dishwasher, studying English at college, and occasionally being hospitalized to treat his tuberculosis. He believed that the Hawaiian climate would help improve his health, so he took a ship to Honolulu. As a seemingly educated European, Rock was able to talk his way into a job at a local school teaching Latin and natural history. He enjoyed being outdoors because it was good for his lungs, so he devised a way to get paid for it. One story goes that Rock barged into the Hawaiian Department of Forestry one day and talked them into employing him as a botanical collector to gather seeds and specimens of rare Hawaiian trees and shrubs. Over the next three years, Rock threw himself into plant hunting trips around Hawaii and published his first botanical paper. In 1911, he joined the College of Hawaii and spent a very productive decade of research and scholarship there rising to become a professor of systemic botany. Rock had already achieved a great deal at a relatively young age. In fact, his accomplishments at 30 would have been regarded by many as sufficient reward for a lifetime's work. But apparently, as is evidenced by over half a century of lifestyle choices, Rock possessed an endless drive to explore the unknown and share it with the world. In the year 1920, the U.S. Department of Agriculture was looking for a plant collector to go to Asia and bring back seeds of the Chalmugra tree, which was used in the treatment of leprosy. It was a position for which Rock was perfectly suited, and he was quickly sent on his way to Thailand, Myanmar, and India. It was on this trip that he started writing for the National Geographic, an important collaboration that would span four decades. And the Department of Agriculture was also satisfied with his collecting results, so much so that they sent him on another trip to China in 1922 to find samples of blight-resistant chestnut trees. Rock arrived in southwest China's Yunnan province and used its capital city, Kunming, as his base to travel to and from Yunnan's more remote areas. Over the next year, his plant-collecting activities drew the attention of the National Geographic Society, which succeeded the USDA in providing Rock with funds allowing him to travel further afield and for longer periods of time. Rock spent the next 18 months on a productive plant-collecting expedition to collect around 60,000 herbarium samples, 1,600 samples of birds, and 60 of mammals. At that time, his collection was described as one of the most important single contributions to the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of Natural History. It was in northwest Yunnan's ancient town of Lijiang that Rock stayed for the longest period and did much of his academic work in botany and anthropology. As a botanist, Rock's skills in taking notes and photographs in the field translated well into his endeavor in anthropology. The Nashi are an ethnic minority group native to Lijiang, which received strong cultural influences from both the Han Chinese and the Tibetans in the form of Confucianism and the Bon religion. The Bon religion gave rise to Nashi's unique religious rituals and pictographic Dongba script. At that time, the Nashi culture was still intact, but already beginning to die out. Rock began to record everything he could about Nashi rituals and the Dongba, a term that refers to both the religious texts and the shamans who performed them. In 1924, he introduced Nashi culture to the world with an article in the National Geographic entitled 
Banishing the Devil of Disease Among the Nashi, Weird Ceremonies Performed by an Aboriginal Tribe in the Heart of Yunnan Province. The article gives a lengthy account of a religious ceremony conducted by a Dongba to cure a sick man. The article established Rock as an expert with a historical legacy on the Nashi and gave him a reason to continue to stay in Lijiang, where he intended to live the rest of his life. In his later expeditions and studies, he produced a 1,094-page Nashi English Encyclopedic Dictionary and two volumes of monographs called The Ancient Nashi Kingdom of Southwest China, as well as numerous scholarly papers on the language, culture, and religion of the Nashi people. Rock was quite an enigmatic character. When traveling around, he was typically accompanied by a complete entourage that included armed soldiers, as bandits were common in those days. He is said to have taken along a personal cook with a dining set, a portable tub, even a phonograph. And he always maintained an air of superiority wherever he went, socializing only with the local political leaders and cultural elite. On these occasions, he would tell them about the outside world, and as a result, he would often be granted unfettered access to local lands and archives that were generally closed to foreigners. It was in Muli that Rock's legend really began. Muli was a small and obscure mountainous tribe on the borders of Tibet and Sichuan, where hordes of Tibetan robbers roamed around to raid travelers. It was ruled by the Muli king Chota Chaba, a living Buddha. Rock first sent some of his Nashi plant collectors to Muli in 1924, along with a letter addressed to the Muli king, asking for permission to visit his semi-independent kingdom. When Rock visited Muli, it was a 400-year-old lamasery complex containing about 340 houses, 18 temples, and 700 lamas. When the prime minister escorted him to the king's palace, he was accompanied by the sound of trumpets, conch shells, drums, and gongs. He spent three days there and developed friendly ties with the king. On this trip, Rock caught a glimpse of the distant trio of peaks known as Konkaling, or the Konka Rusumgongba peaks, Shunrazig, Jambiyang, and Chanadorja. He was instantly smitten by these unknown peaks, as he called them, but the Konkaling was under the control of Tibetan bandit leader Tra Shi, who didn't agree with Rock's visit until four years later, after the Muli king had written to intercede several times. In March 1928, Rock set off to visit the three sacred Konkaling peaks with an entourage comprised of 36 mules and horses, 21 Nashi assistants, and the head lama of the Muli monastery as a guide. When Rock finally reached the Konka Gompa at the back of Shinrazig, low clouds had closed in around the monastery, with the summit and ice ridges of the mountain remaining hidden in the mist. Rock spent an unsettled night because he knew he was only allowed to stay for three days. Fortunately, there was a storm that night, and the skies cleared, allowing Rock to explore higher up the ridge and take some excellent close up views of the mountain and its glacier. This is what he wrote. I rose and stepped into the cold gray morn. In a cloudless sky before me rose the peerless pyramid of Jambayang, the finest mountain my eyes ever beheld. The sky was greenish black, 
the snowy pyramid was gray. The apexes of both it and Shunrazig suddenly turned a golden yellow as the sun's rays kissed them. Rock left those holy mountains with a profound attachment, and from the moment he left until his death, he regretted not being able to stay longer. In one of the most embarrassing episodes of his career, shortly after his visit to the Konkaling, Rock cabled the National Geographic Society in Washington to inform them that he had calculated the height of Minya Konka to be more than 30,000 feet, even higher than Mount Everest. Rock may have been a meticulous botanist, but he was no surveyor. Given his dubious track record in estimating the height of mountains, the National Geographic Society were skeptical and waited until Rock returned to the U.S. later to check his figures. When staff reviewed Rock's calculation and surveying techniques, they quickly downgraded the estimates of the mountain height to around 25,000 feet. Even this downgraded figure was later proved to be about 100 feet too high. Rock was extremely embarrassed about the whole incident and never spoke of it again. Rock also crossed paths with American journalist Edgar Snow in Kunming in 1930 and invited him to travel with him around Yunnan. That was seven years before Snow published his internationally acclaimed Red Star Over China. The 25-year-old American from Missouri left Shanghai after two years of journalistic apprenticeship with an English-language newspaper and planned to conduct a 10-month odyssey around southwest China, Vietnam, Myanmar, and India. As Rock and Snow began their travels together, it soon became clear that they didn't quite get along with each other. After a two-week trek, they arrived in Dali. Rock was already extremely unhappy with his company, complaining that Snow showed little gratitude and did not even pay the expenses he should have. Snow obviously saw their different lifestyles and temperaments as well, and the two parted ways around the new year of 1931 on not-so-friendly terms. Nevertheless, the pair kept in touch and met a few times over the following years. Rock stayed in China even after the Japanese invasion in 1937 until he finally decided it was in his best interest to leave for both security reasons and health concerns. He was employed by the U.S. Military Department as an expert consultant with the Army Map Service when he helped draw the map that was to become known as the Hump Route which proved to be a crucial flight route during the Second World War, used by the Allies to fly supplies into southwest China. After completing this assignment, Rock managed to return to Lijiang in 1946. But in 1949, before the People's Republic of China was founded, Rock flew back to the United States, taking with him a great deal of the Nashi literature he had collected. To supplement his income, Rock sold his collection to the University of Washington in Seattle. There, he was appointed as Honorary Research Associate and spent some time there. Over the ensuing years, he also made short trips to Europe, South America, and Japan. Though Rock continually cherished the hope of returning to China one day, he was never able to do so. In his last days, while suffering from heart disease, he wrote to a friend, I will see how things go during the next year, and if all is okay, we'll go back to Lijiang to finish my work. I want to die among those beautiful mountains rather than in a bleak hospital bed all alone. Sadly, it was not meant to be. In December 1962, Joseph Rock died of heart failure in Hawaii at the age of 79. 
Although Rock never set foot in Li Jiang again after 1949, people there never forgot him. They respected him and called him the father of Nashiology. Two years ago, his former residence in the ancient village of Yuhu, where he lived on and off for 27 years, was renovated as a museum and opened to the public. On display there, you can see a large number of Rock's photographs, which are among the earliest and most extensive photographic examples of pre-revolutionary Li Jiang. Despite certain insufficiencies in theories and methodologies from an academic perspective, Rock's 27 years of field exploration and research made remarkable achievements in terms of studying the plants, geography, language, religion, and history of the Nashi in Yunnan and southwestern China in general. Yang Fuchen, a research fellow on Nashi studies at the Yunnan Academy of Social Sciences, commented that Rock's contribution is extremely important in the sense we are no longer able to obtain first-hand information on Dongba as Rock did. It's clearly evident to scholars across multiple disciplines that, scattered along the trails of his extravagant expeditions, Joseph Rock provided invaluable data and clues for later generations to follow. Well, that's the end of our podcast. Our theme music is by the famous film score composer Rock Chun. We want to thank our writer Yu Wei Tao, translator Yang Guang, and copy editor Pu Ren. And thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it, and if you did, please tell a friend so they too can understand the context. <laughs>